Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Hi, this is Meg Mason. My book, Sorrow and Bliss, is one of your summer stories. At Newcastle Library, get your copy now. Meg Mason began her career at the Financial Times and the Times of London. She's written for newspapers such as the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sunday Telegraph. She's written humour for the New Yorker and Sunday Style. She was a GQ columnist for five years and a regular contributor to Vogue, Marie Claire and Elle. Her first book, Say It Again in a Nice Voice, a memoir of early motherhood was published in 2012. Sorrow and Bliss is her latest novel, released in the very strange year of 2020. In the words of one reviewer, this was exactly the right time to read a book like Sorrow and Bliss. Reflecting on it for a few days now, I think the reason it's had such an impact on me is that it's the most unconventional story of hope at such an unconventional time. Meg Mason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with... Martha. She's incredibly lovable. Uh, she has some a journey to go through. Um, tell us about Martha and where she came from for you. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, you're the first person who's ever described her as lovable. And so that's such a nice change because I've been sort of fighting that unlikable you know, battle for a couple of, not a battle. I've been having robust discussions with lovely readers who've found her somewhat unlikable, but it's, but it's funny because I find her lovable. I would have her as my bridesmaid if she existed. And so I find it really difficult. Like I almost want to, um, it was actually an editor who pointed out to me first that she is apt to be sort of casually cruel. And I'm like, where? Point to, point to the parts that, you know, she obviously makes observations, but they're just empirically true. You know, things are bad. And anyway, so I've sort of accepted that she can be a little bit that way. But of course, when the book opens, she's incredibly unhappy. And I think all of us can be not our best selves when we're unhappy. So in her more lovable state, she is 40. She's married to a man called Patrick, who they first met as t- teenagers when he sort of turned up to a family Christmas with a cousin from boarding school. And he sort of fell in love with her instantly. But, you know, it took a good decade and a half for her to sort of see him not as the family friend and as a failed marriage in between and things like that. So she sort of got to that age now where I would almost describe the novel like second to being a love story. I think it's a coming of age, but she doesn't come to age until she's 40 and I think that's actually a more common scenario than you know for us than coming of age at 18 when I think you've never almost been stupider do you know what I mean and so yeah so it's her battle I guess for the thing the one thing that she wants the one piece of information that she sort of needed since she had a I guess maybe in the old parlance nervous breakdown as a teenager and she's had this illness ever since it's kind of undiagnosed but it's you know, it's informed all her relationships and the course of her life. And so this is the story of her, you know, on the brink, wrestling it back to the extent that any of us can. When people say to you, oh, she's so unlikable, or when someone like me says, oh, she's so lovable, how conscious were you that there was some connection with her as a woman, as a character? 
Well, I think, I mean, the story of the novel and of how it, I came to write it and the absolute nuttiest nutshell I can fit it into is just that I'd spent all of 2018 writing a book that didn't work. And at the end of it, I had to just walk away from that manuscript and sort of mentally thinking my career as well. Um, and then tried to sort of rebound and just started again in 2019 and wrote this completely different book. But the way, you know, I sort of would have described myself in between thinking that, you know, this one thing that I wanted to do my entire life I couldn't do it. I just felt post hope. I think, you know, and someone would say to me, what do you, well, now that you've tried that, it didn't work out. What, you know, what do you hope to do next? And I just, nothing. I didn't want to do anything next. I was just, you know, post hope. And I think I was 40 at the time. So obviously that's the starting place for Martha. But I think, you know, honestly, that's the age where we sort of stop being able to look at life choices that might've got us to a particular point and went, oh, well, you know, there's still plenty of time. You know what I mean? It's kind of been looming for this long. And then it's like, oh my goodness, it's here. And everything's bearing out and the decisions we've made. And I think it can lead to a little bit of an existential crisis, which is probably where I was and where she began. And then obviously from there evolves off in her own direction. And once you pile on events and experiences that I haven't, you know, that you haven't had as an author, she takes on a life of her own, which is what really happened. And it was fun. It was glorious from there compared to the blood from a stone experience of the year before. No blood came out either. (laughs) I was horrified by Martha's first marriage. So, of course, relationships are an important part of humanity. Uh, her first marriage breaks down and she finally meets Patrick and or marries Patrick because she has known him for so long. Love uh, is universal from all genres, from crime fiction through to domestic fiction. Why have a divorce? Why have Patrick? Could she, could Martha have had this life without marriage, without love? Jonathan, without the first marriage. Well, first of all, the thing is to say, I guess, that it was, it lasted a total of 43 days, the first marriage to Jonathan. I think she was 25 when she got married to him. And she was, I would say, because by then, what would be seven or so years that she'd been searching for this diagnosis and trying to understand who she was and sort of, you know, failing through many doctors and many attempts at, you know, various therapies. And I think she was probably arriving at a point then where she felt, I mean, stuck that way. And I think sometimes we, you know, lurch towards something that might make us different. And I think, you know, wanting to be somebody else, this Jonathan represented maybe that chance. Maybe if I marry this person, it's completely unlike her, a completely different world, you know, this slightly awful, sharky, dealer, suave person who turns out to be, you know, a bad egg probably trying to you know leap in that direction and of course it doesn't work because your yourself keeps resurfacing but I think the reason that you know that ultimately I do see it as a love story more than anything is because it explores the whole relationship you know of Patrick and Martha meeting from you know teenagers all the way until what at the very beginning of the book seems like the end of their marriage because it starts at the end and then goes from there but I think that's romantic in its own way. You know, those long, that full relationship, because it isn't the meet cute plus the proposal at the Eiffel Tower for most of us. You know what I mean? It's that very stubborn, persistent love that you work out with somebody and choose every day over something else. Do you know what I mean? And I think those little intimacies where you see Patrick and Martha on the sofa eating pasta or, you know, going for a walk, those are the sorts of moments that I, as an author, thought, can I present those as romantic in their own way? Um, and sort of highlight that maybe we all have more romance in our lives than we think if we have someone to watch Netflix with. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Read, relax, and join the conversation. 
Do you have to draw from personal experiences when it comes to writing about love or can you completely make it all up? I think every writer would say it's a combination because I think as a the personality of a writer, and I, I don't think it's the sign that you are a writer. And I always want to say that because I think people who want to write and haven't yet felt maybe I'm not, maybe I don't have the temperament or I'm not qualified. And the only qualification is that you just do start writing eventually at some point. And once you do, it's like your brain just flicks into this collecting mode. You know what I mean? Where everything starts to look like something that could be in the novel and you collect all these things and then your experiences kind of, you know, will come to bear on it. But I could never write for so many reasons, you know, a fictionalized version of my own life, apart from the fact it would be so boring and there'd be nothing for me to learn and nothing to explore. I mean, I've already lived it. And sort of escapism is the perk of the job. Do you know what I mean? It's why it's not set in Sydney. It's why it's set in London. And, you know, all of the ways I'm just seeking to get away from myself, you know, from nine to five or really five to 9 p.m. was more like how it was written. But yeah, so I think, I mean, obviously you draw on it and there are snippets of conversation and bits and pieces, but it's it's whole unto itself. Do you know what I mean? And I certainly had to take leaps of imagination to get characters from where they were to where I sort of needed them to end up. I was intrigued that it wasn't set in Australia. Where are you from? I'm from New Zealand originally, and I've lived in Australia for a long time, but I'm not a citizen yet. So when I have, you know, when I'm described as an Australian author, I always think, well, not not actually, but I'll take that lovely badge anyway. And so, yeah, but it lived in London for a, a few years. And I think the reason to set it there was because it has this theme of sort of these family Christmases. We keep meeting the extended family and Patrick for the first few years just on Christmas when he keeps coming back. And I think, I mean, a Northern Hemisphere Christmas is just more believable to half the world, but also it's easier to write. It's more romantic to write. I think no one, you know, outside of the Southern Hemisphere would buy it a hot Christmas with they just like what is this woman talking about so that's that's why I was there and it just so happened that between the failure and the restart I went to London and Oxford which is the other setting thinking that it was all over and I was just there to rehabilitate but of course the collecting was still going on so it just refreshed everything and there it all was ready to go why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au library. Let's talk about Martha's resilience. How far were you willing to push her? Uh, further than I realised in terms of I thought she was just having a relatively normal time of it, but I suppose it is her experience is fairly extreme at times but I think she's the narrator she tells the book and I think the times when she has a low and she isn't her best self it's with reflection that she that she talks about it and it's with it's almost confessional in the way that she talks about it which is my other defense against the unlikability you know sort of idea just because she is always seeking to be better and even these awful things that life does throw at her and you know the cost of that mental illness to her and have everyone around her um which is i was equally eager to show that it isn't just her who suffers i just see resilience and i just see this driving on and not knowing what on earth she's doing but almost this refusal to just abandon it and the same with patrick that you know he constantly makes that choice towards her and 
probably puts up with more than he should. But I think we tend to do that as well, don't we? When we're in our slightly possibly dysfunctional patterns, it gets sewn in right at the beginning. Um, and But I think that's the crux of the novel is when they both have this revelation of things will have to be new, things will have to be done differently. But even that takes resilience, doesn't it? To be like, let's burn it down and rebuild it. Do you think resilience is innate or learned behaviour? Oh, that's such an existential conundrum. I think it's probably a decision, isn't it? Because as you get older, you realise that, oh, this is actually not going to be quite the dream run that I was expecting and resilience is absolutely going to be required. And that was certainly, you know, a lesson that I had personally just acquired in starting the novel. So I suppose, you know, that resilience was born through it and then hope begins to be woven in as I think you sort of almost start to see the impact and the momentum of resilience build, which it's just a constant series of a thousand really small decisions, isn't it? To not give up today, to not give up this afternoon. And I think it builds on itself. I like that some of the paragraphs stand alone, you know, where you put the asterisk either side and they're almost a sentence or two. They're not very long, some of them. It's like Martha's thoughts uh, and you just, you become part of her thinking. Was that intentional? Yeah, I think it was because I don't think it would be realistic. Like this was the first time I'd written this from the first person narrative perspective. And I don't think in a long 352 page linear chronology you know what I mean and I don't think any of us do and I think because there's that aspect of her trying to work out her story as she tells it you know she's pulling in these tiny discrete observations and even though probably they could be lifted out of the book completely that it's where she gets her character from and it's where we see her interacting in these small tiny ways which is where her compassion does actually tend to emerge and I think it's where Um, You know, she'll have this tiny interaction with her sister Ingrid, who's probably apart from Patrick, the key sort of character for her. And I just think um, it's part of the working out. And I think probably it's where some more of the humour is, which is the sustaining thing through the book, because there are these dark moments. And I think I have to I have to bring people forward with humour. I have I have to pay them <laughs> with humour to keep going. It is actually really funny. While I was reading it, uh, I had someone sitting nearby, and I'd you know make a little chort or snuffle or um, just that little <laughs> out of your nose. You know, like it's you are very funny. Are you funny outside of writing? Would, would, would your friends describe you as a funny person or is it, or are you a, a funny writer? Is Martha the funny one? Oh, well, thank you for all of that. Um, my friends would describe me as an absent person for the last year, but now that I'm back. Blame COVID. Um, I, yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Just in my writer's sort of reclusive way. But I think, um, I think she's not outright lols. Do you know what I mean? She's not, Ha-ha's and she, I don't think she's certainly trying to be. And I wouldn't say, I think if I was trying to be, you would be able to tell. Do you know what I mean? Like you could see the striving. And there's certainly not jokes in a kind of constructed way with a payback or a callback or whatever. But I think she just has that particular outlook on life. I think probably Ingrid is the funny one. Or that seems to be the feedback. The sister who is, you know, only 15 months younger than Martha. So they've been incredibly close and they're sort of survivors of their childhood together. But the other thread in the book is that, you know, as siblings, even if you're incredibly close, or maybe especially if you grow up incredibly close, once you start making different life decisions, there becomes this sort of separation that gets wider and wider as you go on. So kind of the sub story, I guess, is how Ingrid and Martha are going to stay, you know, keep finding that central place and keep reinforcing and deciding for that closeness, which I think is really difficult. And I suppose a love story 
parallel in its own way. It certainly is. Their relationship is really important. So I'm glad you brought it up. And it leads us to talking about change as well, because they've been so close. And then as adults, things change. How do you plot out change and how it occurs on your characters like Martha? Do you sit down and plot it out? Oh, I only ever have an end point in mind. I, I sort of know where I, where they're going to end up, actually, in terms of an actual sentence or the final paragraph of the story that's usually formed at the beginning. And the first scene is obviously the other first one to come. And then it's just a question of getting there. So it just evolves. And I always think it's, you know, I used to think before I'd done it, when an author would say, you know, the characters just begin to speak for themselves and they just walk onto the page. And I'm like, no, they don't. And also that sounds incredibly pretentious and or nuts, which is which one you want to, you know, but it, they actually do. I'm sorry to say they become as absolutely real as the people in your own life, possibly more consuming for the time that you're doing it. And I think Ingrid just sort of charted her own course, which was to have more and more and more children as Martha continued to have no children. And I think that's one of the, you know, the biggest obstacles, isn't it? But even friends or siblings or anyone, when they've got children and you don't, it's just like, where is the crossover now? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it gets very slim. So that's their journey. Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. So that said then, do you get sad or do you grieve once the book's finished and you're no longer writing about Martha? Is there some grief at the end? Yeah, I think there probably is. And again, I mean, that just sounds so, you know, like an artiste would say that, do you know what I mean? And I I don't want to sound like that, but you do because it's been a year of your life or much longer and where you've lived with these people and you've formed, you know, they've sort of formed and you've learnt from each other. Oh my gosh, I'm straying into such artistic territory. But um but yeah, there's a there's a thing of sort of giving it away. But I think for me the most um intense moment is not when it comes out, not when I finish it, not when it appears on the shelf, but the day that they press print at the factory. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the day that it's over and no changes can be made. And my job is really essentially finished and I can't take it back. You know what I mean? And so that's the big kind of, that's the day when I feel in a bit of a fugue, just slightly wandering around, really relieved, but also just um, wondering what to do next, feeling a bit lost. Do you feel that the change we've been talking about is just part of that resilience? Do the two go together? Can you have resilience without change? Oh, well, not so not insofar as you have to learn resilience. I mean, that's change in itself. But I think the only thing that I would ever feel would be something a relationship couldn't survive or couldn't you know, thrive under is if one of the partners is like, well, do you know what? This is just what I'm like. You know, that to me is sort of when you get to that point, I can't, I can't change. I shouldn't have to change. This is just what I'm like. And of course you can't completely overhaul each other's personality and certainly shouldn't go into it. Obviously all the advice is not to go into it thinking that's where I'll sort you out, you know, but I think that you have to stay sort of open and plastic and to see that these things you're doing are not serving either of you and, you know, and deciding on that change and committing yourself to it. I mean, isn't that just so difficult? But I think in the book and in my experience in real life, there is enormous reward in it. You know, Martha doesn't get the thing that she's sort of wanting the entire time, but she gets something else, you know, and I think that's often the way it works in real life. It, is, it bears fruit, do you know what I mean? If you're willing to stand with that 
pickaxe, I don't know what you dig, what you garden with, but if you keep doing it, you know, if you sort of plant these things, I do think that there's reward at the end. We didn't get the book of 2017, 2018. We got Martha and Sorrow and Bliss. We're really happy about that. What's next for you, Meg? Oh, goodness. Well, this is what I'm, this is what I um, am deciding now, while this is all sort of happening, you, I'm in this process of how do I uncouple from all of these people? You know, how do I let it belong to everyone else? And how do I break that connection with Martha and Patrick and move on to these other characters? So I do have an idea, but it's such a sort of sideways, just edging towards it. Do you know what I mean? Like the idea of actually studying on something else is horrific. If I actually think about it, like why would I do that to myself again and my family? and my editor and you know but I think what I've learned and this is probably what became clear to me with the starting over is I just can't help myself I think that's probably the other qualification of a writer even having tried and failed and failed and failed if you just keep going back for more punishment it probably means you're a writer so I definitely will I definitely will well hopefully I'll be back talking to you again in a year and a half interviewing authors for this podcast series has made me wonder why authors even bother the process the you're also um you know the anguish about writing it but um but we don't have any other skills then that's the problem if we did we would just be out of here like a rubber's dog but we've just got the one well we just try and monetize it we're so pleased you wrote sorrow and bliss you do have a great skill for writing and thank you for talking to us for the podcast today oh thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone who's read the book i really it means a great deal to me thanks for listening to your summer stories from newcastle libraries why not take a dip and a sip then rate and review us wherever you listen This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production.